work. It's been around forever. From the days of the earliest humans hunting and gathering, to social media influences today, and everything in between, providing for physical needs has been one of the main driving forces of our history and culture. Throughout the ages, new ideas and technologies have changed our perception of work, its purpose in our lives, and what it provides to individuals, community members, and the entirety of humanity. These are complex questions with far-reaching, day-to-day implications. And while we can't cover it all in one episode, today's show will set the stage for everything we cover in the future. Welcome to another episode of Doorward Thinking. Hello again, listeners. I'm your host, roller coaster enthusiast Nate LeBlanc, and I'm back with my friends seeking better ways to think about life and work. Each week, we'll open a new door in our search for clarity as we consider the intersections of art, science, and the human spirit. With me today in the St. Louis studio is proud dog owner Stephen Eit. Welcome to the show, Steve. Hey, hey Nate. And a one time and hopefully future scuba diver, Daniel Jacob Bison. AKA Jake. Should I make bubbles or what? Bubbles. <laughs> We're going with Jake today? Oh, yeah, exactly. Okay, okay, it's Jake today. Also in the studio, from Cleveland, Ohio, where Superman was first drawn and developed, new to the world of audio engineering, Peter Costanzo. Welcome to the show, Pete. Thank you, Nate. And I, I did fly here today, but I'm not Superman. Uh, shout out to Southwest Airlines for the cheap direct flight to St. Louis. Happy to be here with you guys. We're happy to have you too. And also happy to introduce a new contributor to Doorward Thinking in studio with us today, new homeowner and trying his hand at homebrew, Matthew Clem. Welcome to the show, Matt. Good to be here, Nate. Thanks for having me. Fantastic. Pete, you flew today. I did, yeah. I uh, I knew I had to be here with the team after hearing myself on the last uh, <laughs> that the la- our last episode. It sounded like I was uh, recording on dial-up in a phone booth that was underwater in a cave. So I knew that it would just be good to be here with you guys, and I'm sure the listeners want to hear something better than 1995. So I just I couldn't pass up this moment. Well, we're happy to have you here, man. So happy to be here. So listeners, we were trying to set up a Zoom link for Pete so that he could have his audio here and he walked into the room and said hey Nate I haven't gotten the zoom link yet can can you make sure to get that to me and I just looked at him and I was like wait what is going on so how did how did you decide to uh when did this all start to get you over here well basically for the first episode I tried to convince Peter to come, but turns out he had already been scheming. But because of uh, his commitment to his family, it was unable to happen for that first time. But he, he, he had disclosed at that point, like, yeah, I was, I was already trying to make that happen for the first one. But, you know, things happen for a reason. And uh, all of a sudden, he made it happen for this one. So, incredible. Just, uh, just another surprise. It's been a great week. Guys, huge, um, huge. Yeah. So I guess we'll hop right to it. So because work is one of those things that's been around forever, I thought it would be a good idea to highlight some important developments in the history of work and how those developments may have influenced the way we've thought about it from prehistory to the present day. Giving credit where credit is due, this timeline has been compiled from several sources, the details of which can be found in the show notes. 
And I can't include everything, but if you have a comment, question, or details to add to this conversation, be sure to email us at podcast at doorward.com so we can have further discussion. So way back in prehistoric times, we start with the development of various religious traditions and mythologies. Then with the advent of writing, those traditions get recorded and developed further in story and thought. They reflect their culture's worldview. For a few examples, the Judeo-Christian tradition tells the story of God giving people the work to fill the earth and subdue it after their creation. Then after the fall of man, God tells Adam and Eve they will experience toil and hardship when they do that work. In Islam, work is obligatory and virtuous with directions to work hard, strive for abundance, and to show respect to both workers and workplace leaders. In Hinduism, doing work well is an act of worship and fulfills one's duty. A person's relationship to others and the world through their work well done allows for spiritual progress. And in Confucianism, which emphasizes respect for one's elders and authority figures, perfection in work is encouraged as a way to show respect for the elders and authorities' values. With this view, a person generally would align their values with their organizations. So in all of these traditions, work is good and it has its place, whether it's divine command, a way to progress to one's truest self, or societal duty to foster peace. Another viewpoint influencing the Western idea of work was that of the classical world. Greek philosophers like Plato viewed labor as a hindrance to the greater intellectual activities of philosophy, governance, and politics. Those who could afford the leisure for intellectual activities had greater prestige than those who labored and the laborer did their work with the hope of one day being able to afford time for education and political discourse. Slavery and work for a nobleman's household were common. Together, these concepts formed the basis for the divide between workers and rulers we saw in Rome and the Middle Ages, and attitudes that persist today. In the Renaissance, artists like Michelangelo and Leonardo da Vinci were commissioned by the wealthy to adorn churches, palaces, and other grand buildings with their art. They commanded large sums of money and had full creative control over their work. Not only were they able to provide for basic needs, but they were able to use and develop their intellect in ways they found pleasurable and fulfilling, doing work valued by the elite. This is much like our work today, in which we seek to be paid for doing creative work that brings enjoyment. Then in Paris in 1750, Diderot and D'Alembert published the first Encyclopédie, which details every branch of human work. From baking to farming and locksmithing to weaving, the work of the everyman was praised and given value such that the skills of each craft could be appreciated. In 1899, University of Chicago academic Thorstein Veblen publishes his work, The Theory of the Leisure Class, which posits that as soon as one is able, they use the fruits of their labor to purchase signs of how leisurely their life can be. It's an idea that is challenged in the next century, but does not go away completely. In the early 1900s, innovations like the assembly line and mass production made high-class leisurely goods more accessible to members of the working class. In order to produce and afford such goods, there was plenty of work to be done. Now it was seen as taboo to be idle, and many people, from the poor to the wealthy, put in long hours at work to show they were good, productive members of society. Work was now the prestigious activity. In 1945, the first Myers-Briggs personality test was given to medical students at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. 
The test was the work of Catherine Cook Briggs and her daughter, Isabel Briggs Myers, and tries to pair people with jobs ideal for their personality. As I'm sure many of you are familiar with, the test rates people on four metrics, introversion to extroversion, thinking to feeling, sensing to intuition, and judging to perceiving. This promoted the idea that finding work that you enjoy is about choosing the job that best fits in with your personality, not just the amount of money. In 1984, an Apple Computers ad shows a heroine saving dull, soulless, standardized workers from a Big Brother-like character inspired by the famous George Orwell novel. The ad tries to position Apple as the brand that provides personal freedom and creativity in work. This kind of life, Apple asserts, is available to everyone, and for a mere $2,500, or about $6,200 in today's money, you could have it. With a little bit of overtime and savings, the home computer was within reach. And that brings us right back to today. In a world where we are brought up to believe there is a perfect fit of work for us, it's our task to get out there and find it. Unfortunately, many of us have trouble finding work that allows us to live up to the Renaissance and Myers-Briggs ideal of being well-paid to be creative in a job we find fulfilling. It is undoubtedly one of the factors powering the great resignation we talked about last week, where tens if not hundreds of millions of people around the world are leaving their jobs due to dissatisfaction at work. Even Veblen's theories purchasing signs showing our ability to enjoy leisure have made a comeback. Leisure is being monetized like never before, first in books and magazines, and now in social media and dedicated networks to food, travel, and other activities. So keeping all of that in mind, I'd like to start today's discussion by defining a few terms. In our talk before today's show, we discovered the importance of distinguishing between work, job, and career. So work is an activity involving mental or physical effort done in order to achieve a purpose or result. It's a task to be undertaken. A job is a paid position of regular employment. So think of it as work for pay. And a career is an occupation undertaken for a significant period of a person's life with opportunities for progress. So that's work for pay plus the ability to grow into a more influential role. Growing up in a blue-collar, working-class family, job and work were pretty much synonymous and presented as a duty. Work hard to get by and take care of those who depended on you. Oftentimes, my father or grandfather had multiple jobs to make ends meet. Career was hardly ever brought up. So did anyone have a similar experience? Well, I definitely did. My own uh, career has been a, just kind of a hodgepodge of different experiences. So this idea of like a defined career has always been something that escaped me to some extent. In my case, I, I thought I was going to do one thing and have a you know a career. I really wanted to be in economic development. And you think you're preparing for that, but then life takes you in a different direction. Pete, you've mentioned before that you started working early. I did start work early, and that was something that uh, just – through through leading by example in my family, you know, I had f uh, a father and three uncles that worked in the same job uh, for their entire career, uh, and so they really pressed the loyalty and hard work. Like it was it was a requirement of life to work hard. It was so just something that you had to do as part of you know your journey through life is have a career work super hard like these were prerequisites to get to that 
to that end goal. But yeah, so very uh, blue collar upbringing, started work, single digits, and it was it was serious, not not like chores around the house, but like get the lawnmower out of the garage and go knock on the neighbor's door and figure out, you know, how much you can charge to cut their lawn once a week. I've carried that with me my whole life thus far. Any other experience about how work or career or job was brought up in the home? Uh, yeah, so my dad, he had the same the same job his entire career, um, which was, it's interesting. Obviously, uh, he was promoted, but he worked for the same employer. And so that's kind of an interesting intersection of, of job and career uh, where it was, you know, basically the same job, but was also his career. Um, and a lot of uh, the examples in my life have been the same way. But me personally, I've had a bunch of different jobs. Obviously, a lot of those were in college and, you know, kind of things that were not full time. But I've had a lot of experience of jumping around from job to job. But I think I think there's definitely a lot of overlap there of uh, just, you know, working hard and you know, doing what you need to do. From my side, probably um, it was always expected that you were working and had a job. You know, when you're in high school, you make your own money, pay for your own stuff. Um, so it was always instilled that, you know, hey, you're going to be on your own one day. Kind of expected to go to college. It was just kind of the undertone of the house, like everybody's going to college. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. So it seems like it's pretty commonly shared experience that the idea of going to work and learning work ethic happens before we really decide or get into whatever that career is going to be that's kind of our end product, right? Yeah, absolutely. I was just now thinking of this one occasion. I think I was 11 and I was sent down to the neighbor's house to, you know, weed the dandelions out of our neighbor's yard. The the dandelions, not the Jake D. Lions. <laughs> get out of here. Uh I guess just to improve the real estate value of the street, because uh, I definitely didn't get paid for that. But it was good for you know building character, right? We have these great grand ideas about career and what it's supposed to be like, but people are starting work at a very early age. Do you think there's ever a point where we kind of might just get sucked into this idea of having a job to pay the bills and maybe don't take that step back to think about, okay, what's the actual good that I'm going to be doing with my work? Um, I think that's definitely a, a fair consideration. I've definitely had jobs. No way I'd make a career out of it. But in every job I've had, there's been things I've learned and skills that you know, are applicable across other jobs. And so I think that's a important thing to, to keep in mind. Um, even if you're you're working a job that isn't necessarily pointing towards a a long-term career there's always value in what you're doing currently and there's you know things you can do in that job to enrich yourself and kind of keep building yourself matt that's a great point i like what you just said there you know as, as i was growing up for me personally there was a lot of jobs that i had and at that time i was looking at it like okay i'm gonna this is a vehicle so that i can make money so i can pay for the things that i need in my life right but now looking back on it, right? Hindsight is always twenty twenty, of course. 
the the jobs that I held, I I gained some skill that makes my life easier or you know more enjoyable. Right from being at the motor pool and learning how to wrench on vehicles, working grounds crew, you know, and handling all my my own landscaping in my home now. Um, to even like the time that I spent at Subway, I now know how to properly make a sandwich. So, <laughs> I mean, you there's right, exactly. There's all this value that comes from being in something that we would, you know, classify as a quote unquote job. You do get more out of it than just, oh, well, I got my my paycheck. Great point. Yeah, that reminds me about a talking point we had a couple of days ago. Jake, you were talking about ways to practice habits of excellence. Right. Right. I, th- I think that's one of the major, you know, takeaways in the full sense of the word that once you leave that job, whether you, you know, you quit like this great resignation or unfortunately if you were terminated or whatever, the company closed, that nobody can take those skills away from you. Like you have those now and you can then choose to execute those skills or apply them in a different way and in some different capacity because they're yours now. Like you got those habits of excellence. Well, when you said that, Nate, and when Dan was expanding that, on that, I couldn't help but think about Ricky Bobby in the movie Talladega Nights and how he woke <laughs> up every day and pissed excellence. And I think that that's what... <laughs> seriously, we... I mean, we need, to, we need to be in the same mindset, maybe not so, you know, in such an explicit manner, but we need to pursue excellence in everything that we do. I mean, everybody's job is important. I mean, we just talked about how these how these skills contributed to our own individual lives, but think about the impact that that has for the outside world too. All the beautiful sandwiches that I made for others, right? Not just myself, you know, maintaining Cleveland State University's grounds crew with a wonderful team. I mean, these are things that impact others' lives that we don't really think about when we're, you know, on the clock, so to speak. You know, me and my friends always appreciate a good sandwich. Like, if it's put together the right... I, no, I'm, I'm serious. Like, if it's a... It sounds like a little thing, but you go to a Subway or wherever sandwich shop, and if you get a really good sandwich where everything is put on the sandwich with care, then it's great. I had a, a friend a couple days ago who went to a restaurant to get a burrito, and he said that the cheese... There was, like, a core of cheese in the burrito where it wasn't anywhere else, just in this one spot. And it was like this glob that he bit into that was cold and everything. And it ruined the experience. What we want to do is just be so excellent and have those habits that all the little things that we do on a day-to-day basis are excellent. That's right. It almost seems to me that the company is a playground for building those habits of excellence. And if we're not doing that, in a sense, you know, what are we doing? And Nate, I want to go back to something you said earlier about is that a risk of people getting into jobs that, you know, they're there to pay the bills and, you know, they're almost inescapable and it's more of a job than is a career. And I think what we're talking about of, of practicing excellence in whatever job you have, like that's the way that you're going to be able to move up and, you know, advance your career. And if you know, if that's what you think you need to do, right, of the building the skills that are transferable across all different, you know, types of work. Um, and that's a, I think that's a great way to, even if it's not clear of what you're doing right now that you have to be doing to, to, you know, be taking care of people, 
you know, and you, you can't, you can't just, you know, quit your job and go learn something new for six months or something. There are always things, those skills that, you know, if you perfect, that will help you in all, in all jobs. So, so Jake, you brought up this idea of the workplace as a playground just now. So, you know, when I think of a playground, I think of, you know, a jungle gym with slides, swings. Uh, nowadays, they're making them with those like bouldering walls where they have little handholds and footholds and all, all kinds of apparatuses where you can do just about anything. So, Steve, you bring up the workplace as a playground a lot. So what does it mean to play at work? means we're a bunch of big kids on a big playground and you have to you know learn how to play with others and that can mean a plethora of different things just depending on what role or situation you're in what what are ways that you've learned how to play with others on this this big adult playground we live in i would say always communicate be in communication about um whatever's going on that essentially helps you resolve barriers quicker. Um, the quicker you can identify something that's wrong, the quicker that can get fixed. Work isn't so much about going in and doing something by yourself, but developing this network, this community, through those excellent habits of communication and using that community to achieve your work, achieve your big aim. I would say so. And maybe in particular because the stakes are real. I mean, there are all kinds of experiences that you know, people try to have, you know, whether it's, you know, me pulling those dandelions or, you know, some of the shadowing or internships that are available out there. And we're very aware of that the stakes are real in this playground. But my point is, while we know that the stakes are real, it doesn't discount the fact that we realize there's um, maybe it's about those that growth, it's about the personal development as well. You know, when Steve talks about the, the playground, I think about recess. When you're at recess, you're not, as a child maybe, you think about like, oh, I, I don't want this to end. Um, and I think that we need to reframe the way that we think about work, job, career, similar to how we don't want recess to end. We want to be present in the journey of recess or being on the playground. We get into this mindset of always wanting to, right, we're like chasing retirement or, you know, chasing a larger paycheck or a different title. Steve is reminding us to come back, hang on a second, hold up. We're on the playground here. We can learn, we can enjoy, we can be ourselves. So we just got to, we got to try to find a way to get stuck at recess, if you will. Wouldn't that be great? It would be it would be amazing. It is great. Like, did you ever have those field days in school where it was just like all recess all day, where you were just playing games and and sports? Sure. We would oh, have yeah. the the junior Olympics, yeah, and then they would roll out the the TV at the end when you're all sweaty and out of breath, and you were gonna watch you know a, a movie on VHS. That was that was a good day. <laughs> <laughs> We've kind of been dancing around a few different things that work brings to our lives. So we've talked about network. We've talked about the paycheck, the good that it brings to the community. What are some of the other things that work brings into our lives that's more than just the grind and the paycheck 
and the ability to have a home and take care of ourselves. Well, I would say dignity. And it, maybe that's related a little bit to that contribution to society. But you just mentioned how you know work um, might be what's getting us that you know roof over our heads. But I want to share one experience. I was volunteering at this homeless shelter, getting there real early, making pancakes. And since you're there early, some of the, the men from the shelter would come in later to help get things actually ready for breakfast. But like while I'm waiting for the pancakes to cook, um, you know, sometimes I would, you know, whatever, rinse out the, you know, the pancake batter from the bucket. But I very quickly learned, like, if I did somebody else's task, that they suffered because they no longer had a task to do to contribute, right? So you're talking about somebody who doesn't have that job, who doesn't have um, the roof over the head or whatever, but that work gave them dignity because that was their contribution. And in the kind of the stark juxtaposition of that reality, it was like a huge insight with me that they have always carried with me. Yeah, I think another thing it uh, provides is is structure in a couple of different ways. One, obviously, just in the day, maybe sometimes too much structure, uh, but but nonetheless, it's you know something that you can focus your your time and your talents on. It also helps to I think provide structure to if you're if you have a family. I think it helps to provide structure there in a regular schedule or somewhat regular schedule. The example it sets, you know, and and, and in some ways that's connected also to the contribution to society, you know, providing the structure to society. Um, it's, it's definitely not the structure. It's part of the structure, though, I think. I am really hearing three foundational elements come back, and that's money, fulfillment, and purpose. And so that money piece, right, that enables us to have time and get resources and other stuff. That fulfillment piece is really something that's for us, Right? What do we find satisfactory and rewarding in our experience at work? And then that purpose is that community larger you know, impact that our job has. Yeah, absolutely. I'll speak for myself just with this example. So I left medical school in March, and I had no idea what I was going to do. Like Literally, I put all of my eggs into that one basket for almost 15 years, like a long time. And so when I leave and find out that it's not the right fit for me, I, I didn't know what I was going to do. Getting this job with Doorward, I have the paycheck. So that idea of where am I going to get my money to pay my bills, that's taken care of. So that second piece, fulfillment, just a couple days ago after we posted our first episode and the stats started rolling in, and I was able to hear the episode and be like, wow, like we're on Spotify and Google and all of these awesome places and people are actually listening. And I got this just immense rush that I have never gotten at work before. It was like, wow, I actually did something that is out there in the world and wasn't taking a test or seeing a percentage at the end of a course. Like that was huge. That was amazing. And then the third one, purpose. The purpose of the show and the blog that we have is to get people to take a step back and just contemplate what's going on in their lives. 
And for me, that is one of the most amazing things that I could do. After being in the position where I was, where everything went so fast, we literally call it drinking out of the fire hose. There's just so much information. You can't get it all. To take that step back, I really see the value of it, and I want to give that to others. So personally, everything that I've experienced here is each of those three things that you just brought up, Steve. And so how does that show up in work? So like now that all three of those things are in place for you, how does that show up when you perform for Doorward? Well, I wake up in the morning. I'm not feeling super stressed. So instead of laying in bed and being like, oh my gosh, how is today going to go? I wake up and I'm like, okay, I'm excited. I get to do this thing today or I get to take this step on this project, right? And it's not always easy. There are hurdles that need to be overcome and those are great opportunities to learn those skills of excellence, right? But I come in with a great attitude and knowing that I've made an impact that's valued, I can keep doing what I'm doing and grow in it and make more of an impact. It's just super exciting. And then at the end of the day, when the work is done, I'm not stressed out thinking about how I performed and whether it was good enough. It's very calming to wake up and have a great day at work and then be like, now I get to rest and enjoy my time at home, enjoy my friends, enjoy my hockey game or whatever I decide to do. It's great. So before we were conflating work, job, career, etc. It sounds like you're saying that work does not equal toil. Work is better equated with passion. Absolutely. That's a great way to say it. I really want to disagree with that. I think those two go hand in hand. So that purpose and fulfillment piece, right? That fulfillment piece like you're constantly like on the edge of learning something or like pushing your knowledge and being applicable with it, like using your applied knowledge in the best manner possible, right? You're pursuing excellence in that field. So, so I, I think there is a piece of toil in there for sure. Can we define what toil is versus passion? Or I guess based on what we were talking about before, I would define it as something that you... You know, you don't want to do and you have to make yourself do. But if even if it's like a difficult aspect to the task at hand, but you want to do it, I would say there's passion there. I would say there there's whatever, fulfillment or purpose or, you know, sunshine, lollipops and rainbows. I don't know why you can't be passionate about a difficult thing, especially if you know that you're going to be growing as a person from it. And on top of that, I actually want to say that I think that toil actually brings in more passion. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, like, the end result from it, I totally agree with that. Yeah, and I would also say the two aren't mutually exclusive, especially not over, you know, a period of time. Um, I think you see that in all areas of life. Um, There's always difficult things that come up that you absolutely don't want to have to deal with and I think at the same time, you can still have that passion or, you know, maybe that that toil or difficult thing fades and 
maybe that's not the predominant thing. But yeah, to your point, Steve, I think that there's there's a lot of good that can come from, you know, persevering in the face of things that you don't want to do and especially when you come out the other side. Yeah, well I, I think toil up to a point is great. You can go into a gym and push yourself by adding another five pounds, maybe ten pounds to what you were doing before. But if you put on another full two plates, then you're going to exhaust yourself. Right? Yeah. yeah. Well, now you're equating toil with exhausting. I just looked up the definition, and, and one of them is exhausting physical labor. I don't agree with that. I usually get a lot of uh, fulfillment from exhausting physical labor, like... I mean, growing up, all the jobs, the lawn mowing, the painting, the leaf raking, the caddying in the heat. And at the end of the day, you're like, I accomplish things. I don't think there's any reason why we can't have that. That, that has to mean, you know, a negative, that, that negative connotation that toil brings. Well, but like in the gym, if it's too much, it can break you, right? Like literally break you, be injured. Sure. So it has to be at that right level. And I think that's what Steve was trying what to get What gym are you going to? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, I think that's a good point of both in intensity and duration, right? You you know, so to use your analogy at the gym, right, it, it can be both something that can exhaust you could both be too much weight or an okay amount of weight for too long, right? And so to kind of tie that into what I was saying earlier, uh, obviously a certain amount of, of difficult things that are negative and you don't want to deal with you know, specific to what we're talking about here in your job, it's okay, I think. But if you're looking at it um, as a whole, I think to Dan's point about passion versus toil, I don't think it's so much about whether one of them exists or not. It's whether as a totality, what's the the primary there? Well, they clearly both exist, I think. Oh, yeah. The 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 big thing here is enduring the toil builds discipline right and some people endure the toil their entire lives that's true some people never get to find their passion so that's a i mean that's a pretty big thing that a lot of people are are going through right when we talk about work or the job they're just enduring that that toil they're getting discipline from that right wake up punch in do the job, do something that they hate, like they love it, right? That's discipline. They don't get to get to their, their passion. Now, Nate just shared with us that he was able to get to his passion and he has a big time appreciation for that. But people need to be seeking out the passion and not just enduring the toil because they think they have to. It sounds like it's a perspective thing. Maybe the same thing to one person could be arduous and break them but if you flip that on its head I mean, we had uh in some ways a more difficult week last week and some of the same things going on this week but it's been a great because our perspective flipped that's a great tie into something else we talked about earlier in the week was the locus of control so matt you had a example in the automobile industry right yeah uh, so this is my idea i read an article about it um but uh, so with all the supply chain shortages, um, 
obviously a big one is the semiconductor shortage, microchip shortage. Um, and that has been impacting the car industry heavily. Um, obviously, they're very dependent upon microchips. Um, and this article was talking about why um, it was talking about, you know, different executives at, you know, the different big car companies talking about how they were doing. And um, it was making the point that a lot of the companies, you know, were saying that their sales weren't doing as well, you know, all these challenges. And it was because of the semiconductor shortage. And then Tesla and some earnings call or something like that, they were saying the same thing, but then they took it a step for, further and were talking about, you know, okay, that is a situation that's impacting us, but then what, here's what we did to mitigate that. And, you know, these were the positive results from that. And basically the, the article is making the point that um, people, businesses, especially entrepreneurs are more successful if they, they have that idea of not, you know, taking one step further of, Okay, here here are the external factors, and here's what's impacting us. But then, what what can we do? Like, what what individually can we do to affect things? Um, and so, yeah, the idea of a locus of control of, you know, basically the outcomes are dependent upon you. It's it's a seemingly obvious thing, but I think it's a a thing that's easy to forget and very easy to you know, kind of go through life of seeing all these things that you see your situation is is a result of all these things and you kind of forget about how well you can, you know, impact your own, your own situation. When you talk about locus control, I think about all the people who have decided to leave the rat race of corporate America and go into the real estate industry because here is a place where they can have a little bit more ownership, whether it's investing in real estate or becoming um, a real estate agent, or offering some other kind of services, starting your own, you know, plumbing firm, electrician, uh, contract, any kind of contracting. You have all these, you know, this is small business America, and you have all these solo entrepreneurs, or even if it's through a larger brokerage, it's on them to put bread on the table, and they, they gain back that locus of control by coming into real estate. It's a fascinating phenomenon, actually. Steve, was just, you were pointing out the other day of people quitting those jobs. They're, some of them, a lot of them are moving into the real estate scene. Yeah, I mean, people are moving all over. The adaptability of the environment is, you know, just great today. And they're, they're really going everywhere. But yeah, IT, real estate. And I think a word you use there of ownership is, is really important, obviously. Um, when we say locus of control, we have the word control, but but really, um, a lot of what we were talking about earlier with the the satisfaction, fulfillment, and whatnot can really be dependent upon ownership. You know, especially the the satisfaction of you know you feel like the results are a direct positive success, or if you feel like the success of something came about because of your own efforts, there can be a lot of fulfillment in that. Obviously, I think you see today the opposite. You know, the effects of the opposite of people who go into their their day job and don't really feel like they're doing much and they're not affecting much in their in their job and how unsatisfying that is. And I, and I think to that point, framing that with locus of control, that person that's going into their day job, maybe they show up 15 minutes late and then there's some unrealistic consequence that occurs from them being 15 minutes late. But if they 
if they turn it around and they, they work their tail off, the gain that they get is super minimal. And I think that's why we're seeing a lot of people go into business for themselves, because if they get up and choose to work 16 hours, they, there's no filter that happens on the benefit from them working hard for 16 hours. But there's also no grave consequence for them working a four-hour day and maybe spending some time with their family or, you know, going on a vacation, getting their mind right, you know, going on a walk or a hike. They bring that freedom and that control back to themselves and they're, and they're in control, right? They don't have to watch a clock, punch in, punch out, worry about points or, you know, getting demerits, being fired. I mean... You know, we've seen some of the stuff on the news. It's it's just crazy, right? And 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 you also see a much more clear path of of the direct results of your your efforts. You know, uh, I think sometimes in uh, I would say large companies, but I think it can happen in large and small companies. Uh, you can get into the situation where you know you know you know what you're doing is important. You know the functioning of it, but you don't necessarily see it helping the company grow or you know, what the negative consequences of you not doing that are. And yeah, just that, that direct relationship too. And, and obviously you see, you know, like talking about um, people going to real estate, the relationships they build with their tenants and contractors and other people in the industry and stuff, it's, it's much more direct. And I think that's really satisfying and fulfilling to people. One of the things that we see most often, doesn't matter kind of what hat you wear in the real estate world, it's this feeling, and I think this is actually true in other industries as well, but you have this feeling that you have to do everything yourself, and this is a trap. This is definitely not the case, um, whether it's real estate or, or other areas, and you see by working together, the trading of information, the crowdsourcing, when people start you know, referring each other. This is when they're successful. This is where people actually, all the people that have been successful in the real estate industry have done a lot to you know, get out there, right? To network, to you know, build that you know, circle of trust because people want to work with people that they can trust. And this isn't just for developers or landlords. This is for everyone across the board in the ecosystem. So the skilled tradesmen and the tenants, correct? Yeah, for sure. I know a guy named Phil. He was in the financial industry, super qualified analyst, decided, you know what, I have enough of, I, th I think it wasn't nine to five in his case, it was more like a six to nine uh, kind of deal. And he said no. And he quit his job, he bought a van, he got some business cards, and now he's Phil the handyman. And he got back that control. Now he controls his schedule. And what does he do? He started reaching out to all his friends, and he was so busy because people, oh, wait, I can get Phil in here to, you know, do this little kitchen reno. Now, this is huge for people. Uh, specific to Dorward, I think that, you know, uh, Dorward is helping people build those relationships, right, strengthen them, reduce the overhead of things that distract from that. Our tools are designed to eliminate some of that lever pulling, some of that you know, button pushing that usually comes um, with, you know, even operating your own business. We're, we're trying to provide a platform that uh, allows for all of that in the same place. I'd say that's completely accurate. They, they shouldn't have to work to maintain their relationships. Those relationships should just exist in their natural state. With Phil, 
and his experience getting the van being and having so much work to do phil is providing a lot of value to the ecosystem and to people's lives by the work that he's doing 100 percent uh you think about what's more valued in our society based on you know whatever published pay rates is handyman you know up there right are they are they making those you know six figures well actually in some cases they are right and they can and we have to realize that there's misconceptions out there on on actually what you can make from a job like that and and also you know realize that there's a serious contribution to society i actually remember growing up my parents tried to update the kitchen uh, in our house and it did not work out so they learned their lesson and next time they went with somebody they could trust even if it was a little more expensive i wanted to talk for a moment about the tenants and their very important role in keeping all of this moving uh the world of real estate continues to spin on its axis because they actually have one of the most important roles in real estate and maybe we could focus on the the landlord-tenant relationship and how crucial that is, because that's where it really begins, I think. And I know we've all experienced, at least on one end, how that relationship, good or bad, can really impact your world. That's a great point. They, at the end of the day, are are the recipient, either a renter or a homeowner, of everything that the real estate industry is trying to provide, right? So we think about, you know, this is a service industry, you know, they are the recipient, right? They're the buyer. They're the buyer of the rental ecosystem right, along with the homeowners. And when you see that positive landlord-tenant relationship, it's because the landlord, you know, kind of recognizes and, and acknowledges that they're providing this service, right? Kind of this whole idea of, you know, housing as a service. There's so many different situations, economic, lifestyle, where people would choose to rent, and the landlords and property managers these days are, are really recognizing that. You see record numbers of renegotiations of leases, uh, lowering in some cases to accommodate a tenant who is not able to afford the you know scheduled lease hike or whatever. So it's it's kind of uh, it's interesting to think about uh, how in this you know sort of maybe call it the playground of real estate. Everybody has their part to play. And just because a tenant isn't getting paid, like being a tenant isn't a job per se, but there is work that goes into being a tenant, something for the greater good, that communication, that relationship, that takes time and that takes effort, but the tenant is getting something out of that effort they're putting in. 100%. Um, Maybe we can say that, you know, the deferred maintenance that kind of blights many of our cities, you know, starts with the tenants reporting that. And yeah, as a former tenant myself, you know, I was always in the mindset, like, I live here, but it's not mine. So I got to be extra careful with how I take care of it. And so I was always in the mindset of like, it's always just better to be communicative about anything that needs repaired or fixed, because I probably won't live here forever. And I want to make sure that the next tenant or set of tenants isn't walking into a disaster. And so I've had great relationships with landlords in the downtown Cleveland area and have had not so great relationships. 
it does really impact the whole like taste that it leaves in your mouth, that, that living experience. You want to have a good quality relationship so you can keep that good quality of life. Keep a good roof over your head. And that's just one of the things that Doorward can help do for the entire ecosystem, that communication and that relationship. That was a great talk, and there's a lot there that I think we just scratched the surface on. We might have to come back to this at some point, but thank you so much, everybody, for being here. Pete, super huge surprise that you were here, super happy, and uh, can't wait to have you back in studio again whenever that's going to be. Can't wait to be back. Uh, I'm going to put my cape on and Superman back home, but uh, yeah, can't wait to get back here with you, Nate. Thank you, Steve. Great contribution. Spark plugging the conversation as always. Always a pleasure to ignite something. Jake, good to hear about Doorward and to hear about some of your other experiences. For sure. Hey, we just keep on going Doorward. And once again, a big welcome to Matt. Good to have you here with us, and we hope that you'll be contributing a lot more in the near future. Yeah, it's great to be here. I I look forward to it. All right. Thanks. I think that's going to wrap it up. If you enjoy discussions like the one we had today, like, share, and subscribe to Doorward Thinking to hear us weekly on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you have a comment or idea for future episodes, let us know via email at podcast at doorward.com. We read and respond to every comment and question. If you or someone you know is interested in real estate and Doorward, please visit or recommend doorward.com and check us out on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Join us next week for our third episode, Disrupting the Work-Life Balance, where we'll discuss the implications of this view and explore new ideas for how to fit our time and efforts at work into our larger lives. Till next time, I'm your host, Nate LeBlanc, inviting you to think big thoughts and get back to living.